1: Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Welcome to ARK's For Your Innovation podcast. Uh, today we have an exciting episode. We're going to talk about the founding story of Replit, uh, the future of AI, and what the future of software engineering might look like. And so just to start, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself and maybe talk about your company and the, the founding story.
2: Sure. Yeah, my name is uh, Jed Massad. I am the CEO and co-founder of Replit. Replit is, a, um, is the most ubiquitous programming environment in the world. Basically, it runs everywhere. Anyone can use it. It can run on your phone. It can run in the browser. Um, it can run on your Peloton. I don't think we have a lot of coders on the Peloton. But it—you um, know our vision is that your programming could and should be a lot more accessible. And a lot of the things that software engineers deal with is sort of a a story of Stockholm syndrome. So a lot of the tooling that we have is so difficult to use and not because of any intrinsic problem of the technology. It's largely just like a bad sort of local maxima that sort of the development world has sort of settled on. So the, the, you know, the main problem most people are familiar with if you've taken computer science one-on-one and basically this is what where the idea came from. I was back in Jordan where I'm from in Amman. I am like 19, 20 year old. I'm taking computer science, getting into all these different languages, Java, Python, what have you, depending on the class. And every time I wanna do a bit of homework, Um, I go to the computer lab and I have to set up the programming environment over and over again, like download a gigabyte NetBeans IDE, try to configure that. You're missing a DLL, go and stack overflow, find that. So everyone's familiar with that pain. Anyone who's tried to do a better programming know that just to get to the point where you're typing out code is actually quite difficult. And then God forbid you want to share that program with someone they're gonna have the same problem. They might have missing uh, packages. And you know, at the time people were just like sharing programs over email, GitHub I think was just getting started. But even that, that wasn't like a lot better, right? Like you put up something on GitHub and then how do you actually run it? And so it was pretty obvious to me that there needs to be a browser programming and runtime environment that was reproducible. That was instant. That could run from anywhere with zero setup. So, really, the main idea and the vision was 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 from day zero, um, not even day one, because this is like really pre-starting the company or the product. And so, I I built a prototype back then, and it started going viral in my university, um, which is like it was just like a simple web page, and you could like select the language and type a bit of code, run it, and then, like, share it with someone else. I was like, okay, this thing has legs. Now, when it had all these, like, JavaScript ran natively in the browser. And so, you know, the the first language was JavaScript. I wrote Lisp interpreters and whatnot. But when the time came to add, like, a real programming language, like Python, uh, that turned out to be quite difficult. So it took me two years, and eventually we had a bit of a breakthrough where. We were the first to compile a bunch of languages to JavaScript, so we could compile Python, Ruby, and now this is like standard procedure with WASM. But at the time, there was no WASM, there was no ASMJS, uh, there was this there was this uh, research project from from Mozilla, and it was in its infancy. And uh, the idea behind it was that you can take the uh, LLV, I don't know how deep we want to go. Technically, it seems like a technical go, podcast. Go as but, deep as you want. So, so basically, there's the compiler toolchain called LLVM from Apple, and uh, it has this thing called the IR, IR language Intermediate Representation. So this language is a low le- low-level language, uh, click above machine code, and it allows you to cross-compile to a lot of different architectures. So if you squint, Quint, it kind of looks like a JavaScript or a C-like language. It is just a bunch of F statements and for loops. It's very simple, Turing-complete sort of language. And so uh, you compile like you know uh, the Python interpreter that's written in C into the LL- LLVM IR and then you do a transpilation into JavaScript and then you can run it in the browser. That's the, sort of the simplest case. There's so much problems that comes with that. But anyways, we had this this bit of a breakthrough. We put this project up on Hacker News. It went absolutely viral. And so you know I was, I was like maybe 22 at the time and in Jordan, and then the inventor of JavaScript, Brendan Eich was tweeting about this project. And it was like, <laughs> it was like really exciting for me. And people started talking about it. And then I started getting job offers from the US. I joined Code Academy as the founding engineer. Code Academy, you know, one of the largest online code schools just exited for half a billion dollars earlier this year. And I came to the US, they got me an O-1 visa. I came to New York. Uh, I spent a couple of years at Code Academy. And then uh, after Code Academy, I went to work at Facebook. And the reason I went to work at Facebook is because I was craving a, a deeper technical challenge. And Zuck was starting to talk about internet.org. If you remember that, it was like this idea, like let's connect the world. It was like, you know, Google had a project like that as well. Facebook's one seemed more practical. It's not like balloons or whatever Google was doing. It was, like, let's get te- like partnerships with telcos. Let's uh, like make Android as a computing device like a lot more accessible, cheaper. And let's make sure so that everyone in the world that can afford a cheap Android device can have like a free data plan. And so I joined that. The, the first, joined Facebook to join that. But the, the problem was like I started doing Android programming And I was like, wow, this really sucks. So you're writing this Java code and you're waiting 15 minutes for the thing to compile. And I was like, you know, I'm used to web development. I write a bit of JavaScript. I just like in like a second, I see it running in the browser. And I really wanted to solve this problem. It's like, how can we make Android more programmable or mobile in general? So I started prototyping some ideas. Turns out there's an effort inside the company to bring web development to to native uh, iOS and Android. And that was uh, bringing React.js, the framework from Facebook to native, so React native. And so I joined as one of the early engineers on that project and it took us you know, a couple of years. We shipped in 2015. It was, um, now it's like the biggest cross-platform mobile framework. And that was a lot of fun in 2016. My wife and I, you know, we always work on projects together. She's a designer. we were like looking for something new. Like my time at Facebook was kind of coming to a natural conclusion. I'm a very like sort of mission oriented person. And so just like, don't like wander and and find something else. But it was like, okay, you know, we shipped this thing. It's cool. People are using it. What else can we do? And, you know, the, the question back then in our minds was like, what happened to this online coding space? Like, you know, let's take a look at it. And then you look and there's like a bunch of online IDEs and they're not super compelling. They're all sort of struggling. And the reason is it's sort of, they take this like thing that worked on desktop, this very heavy duty program and they sort of stick it in the browser. Uh, It is sort of like, you know, when I remember reading about when uh, the TV first came around you had the first TV program was someone reading a book on television, on camera, instead of like they were doing the same thing they were doing with radio, but in a different medium. And like every medium shift, and I think, you know, Marshall McLuhan, these kind of philosophers talked a lot about it, is every medium shift at first is like, you don't have the native media for that medium just yet. Uh, And it takes a long time for that to evolve. Like, I mean, if you think about television, like just now, we're starting to see the native television media, which is the Netflix style kind of subscription media, and you know for 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 programming on the web and the cloud in a collaborative way, a lot of the efforts in the like early aughts were just like really just like doing the same thing. They just put it in the browser, and so with Replit, when we started Replit in 2016, the idea was that we want to build something web native and that meant we need to rethink every part of the architecture of software development so that everything is like deep linked, everything is collaborative. And on top of that, we have like a really fun and engaging community. And the idea was that, okay, we're going to, the go to market strategy was that, you know, this thing is going to be toyish for a long time. And so maybe we're not going to be able to get the professional developers but let, let's get the uh, students, the kids, the teachers, the hobbyists, the misfits on this uh, platform, and uh, and you know grow from there. And we've been executing uh, on this since then. Now we have seventeen million uh, registered users all over the world. You know they build projects that get thirty billion hits a month on the platform. So we're operating on a really large scale right now, and we're starting to move up market. We're starting to see developers switch their entire toolkit. Maybe we're not entirely ready for that, but I think next year, we're going to see a lot of developers just adopt Repli as their primary, not only just development, but also hosting a runtime environment. And really, our mission is to power the next generation software development, and we're building something that is collaborative by default, instance, ubiquitous, and AI powered. And I'm sure we're going to get into uh, especially the AI part in a bit.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially for you know people who are just getting into software development. The barriers to entry are pretty high, and that like just getting an IDE set up is in and of itself kind of a, a complicated thing. And I think that that in and of itself kind of scares people away. And so the easier it is to get started, the, the more people I think will will be drawn to to software engineering. That makes a lot of sense for the professional software developer that already has an IDE, right? They've got their 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 toolkit. Um, why Why do they move to Repload? What pulls them over from uh, from just like an, an incentive standpoint?
2: Yeah, the typical path is like, you know, programmers are special in that their hobby is programming in addition to being their job. So like a plumber doesn't do plumbing in the weekend. It's a very unique thing
0: that uh, a programmer maybe Maybe, maybe they someone do. does, but they, yeah, <laughs> certainly the exception, <should> not the <laughs> rule.
2: So programmers tend to play with things on the weekend, right? And we see a lot of actually a lot of like senior programmers get the value of Replit really intrinsically because you have to understand programming was a lot simpler, was more interactive in the eighty, in the 70s, 80s, 90s than it is today, right? So, you know, kids who grew up with basic terminals of Commodore 64, they get replit instinctively because it's like, oh wow, like I can go there and just type code and it just works. And so that's how we get a lot of adoption is that like a lot of people just use it, you know, although the professionals, they they do more hobbyist project. And then it starts eating into the workflow. Like we see it just like, oh, I'm going to use the to like share program during work. And then they share program at work and then that person signs up and then they start using it. And it's just, it has this viral growth. And I think any web app, that's deeply linkable is inherently viral. And you, you saw that with Figma and how Figma infected organizations, not just designers. I think the stats came out where 40% of the MAUs on Figma are designers. So that means 60% of the MAUs are non-designers using a design tool. And so this is this is what happens when you make something with a low floor and high ceiling is that not only you're going to get the professionals, but you're also going to expand the Tam tremendously and start getting you know, like non-programmers, you know technical people also involved in the process of making software.
0: That's a good transition to AI and and the capabilities that we're seeing evolve in, in code generation. I'm curious how, how are you guys thinking about incorporating AI in the short term? I know you've already announced some products with kind of AI features and functionality. Um, how are you thinking about that in the short term? And then we'll, we'll touch on the long-term.
2: Just to back up a little bit and just to talk about it from, from first principles. Um, code, we've always had tools that operate on code, right? Like so code that like works on code. And, uh, and, and, and at Replit we're sort of a company that specializes in running code and parsing code and and using code as data, right? So this idea of code as data is not a new idea. It actually goes back to the 1950s when Lisp was invented. In Lisp, by the way, Lisp is also the inspiration for Replit because Replit comes from the root word uh, REPL, read, eval, print loop, which is a Lisp program that bootstraps an interactive programming environment. And in Lisp, in Lisp, the code is the data. So, at an at MIT AI lab in the 50s and 60s, they were trying to build AI. And one of the ideas that they had is that an AI needs to be self reflective. So, it needs to understand its code and be able to edit it. And so, they, they had a very interesting idea, of, you know, very ahead of its time. So, okay, this idea of code as data has been around for, for a long time the problem is that applying ml in general to code as data it was a very laborious and very specific task so you would have to train a model to do one specific task you know for example refactoring or autocomplete and there were some attempts especially like you know to you're know, starting to Like last decade, you had Kite, which just announced that they were shutting down. And you had a few startups that were starting to kind of think about the idea of like applying NLP and especially deep NLP, ML style NLP to code. And they had some initial traction and success. Now, the problem with all these things is the lack of generality. Like every time you wanna add a feature, you have to retrain and you have to retrain for that specific feature. You have to create a benchmark for that feature. It's just a very laborious ops heavy kind of task. Then you had the big change is the, is the, is the transformer revolution. So 2017 research uh, lab at Google announced uh transformer. Uh, Transformers, this new ar- uh, uh, neural network architecture, and um, the first sort of place they applied it is this language model called BERT. And then they rewrote Google search using BERT and uh, Google search got a lot better and started understanding intents better. And that is because the transformer and especially applied to uh, natural language processing is a very powerful tool. And it is, requires less work on engineers and researchers to train this thing. You can train transformers in a uh, unsupervised way. So the way you say GPT, which is the, you know, the the largest brand name in uh, in transformer technology is trained, GPT-3 for example, is trained by taking the entire internet and training the transformer on it. And the way it's, it trains itself is by masking tokens or by masking words. You can think of it as masking words. You know, basically you put in, uh, you know, training batch. uh, Let's say you put in a a sentence and it, it looks at the sentence, it masks the last word and starts to try to guess the last word. And by learning how to guess words, it learns the structure of language. And now what OpenAI found is that when you scale these parameters up, When you parameters are the sort of weights and biases inside the neural network. So when you add more layers to the neural network, to to the kind of multi-layer perceptron, uh, you get more and more intelligence. And so BERT was like a couple hundred million parameters. That's the one that Google productionized. GPT-2 was 2 billion parameter, I think. GPT-3 was 175 billion parameter. There's a lot of speculation about what GPT-4 is going to be, with, but definitely it's going to be more parameters. And then you had these emergent behavior happening, where these models understand the structure of language, understand, uh, have some reasoning capability, have some basic arithmetic capability, have some coding capability, have some basic logic capability. And the 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 more you train them, the more you scale them up, the better they're they're doing. And so now the difference is you have a model and that's why they call it like a foundation model that is pre-trained on an existing corpus and has this amazing capability right at the door. Even without applying it to a certain uh, domain, even without training it for a certain domain, it already comes pretty competent with that, in that domain. And then you can fine tune it for that domain. For example, for code, it turns out that yeah, the moment they announced gpt3 people start playing around it for, around uh, gpt3 for code and it can generate entire html pages by telling it like hey like make me a website that does x y and z and the way you program transformers is by prompting them and so prompting is a natural language technique to get the transformer or to get the language model to tell you to uh to learn something on the fly so they they called in-context learning. So again, now let me recap. We had ML models that were very specific and now we have ML models that are foundational and have on, in-context learning. So we have ML models that are programmable. So this is, you know, think back to the early computer revolution. Computers were, uh, you know, fixed program computers. Like you would design a computer to do one task. And then, you know, what people call Von Neumann machine uh, or you know a better kind of description for it is the stored program machine, as the idea was that, okay, now the machine can be programmable without changing the architecture of the machine. So now you, you create the software layer. So one way to think about transformers is like now we have the software layer for ML, because you can do in context learning, few shot learning, whatever people call it. Basically, you can take this model that's pre-trained and capable and then make it more domain specific and have it really perform super well on certain domains without additional training. And so, when it uh, came to code, so you know we had this idea that code is data, and what turns out is also code is very, very much like natural language. So, large language models had a really good model of the world just based on language. Turns out they also learned how to code very well. And so uh, now applying large language models into code. Uh, became became a viable thing. We started playing with it early on starting with GPT-2 in 2019. We got some prototypes out in 2020. Uh Microsoft with their partnership with OpenAI released uh Copilot and beta in 2021. We started working on sort of our own version of that. Uh we released it earlier this year. It's called uh Ghostwriter. Uh and Ghostwriter is a programming assistant and it, it has uh, it has two different modalities. So it in one way it completes your code. So think of the Gmail uh, language complete. You know that that gray text that comes out and you hit tab, and that's very basic, by the way. Ghostwriter is a lot more advanced, it can understand the intent behind your code, and then the other modality is that you can right click and do certain actions. For example, you can highlight a piece of code, right click transform, and you can tell the AI make this code faster and it will generate a code that it thinks it might be faster. Of course, you still have to review that code, but it is, you can also just say refactor that code. You can give it very vague instructions and sometimes it'll figure out what to do.
0: Curious, if you look at the usage of of that product today, GitHub released a, a study that was showing that on certain tasks, um, you know, software engineers were able to complete a task in 50% of the time um, with Copilot versus without Copilot. Are you guys seeing kind of similar uplifts in productivity from usage of, of that product?
2: Yeah, we're yet to make a, like a study. The study that I saw from Copilot was 30% better on time, but this is what users are reporting to us. They're like, this is saving me, uh, and they're estimating, this is saving me 30% of my time. This is I got something done in a day instead of uh, two or you know you you can sort of start to get okay this is like a meaningful percentage uplift but by the way this is a very important point there's this very famous book uh, called "The Mythical Man Month have you have you heard of that I haven't no so the Mythical Man Month was um, in the early days of software uh, the way people approach software was was like a very, very much in the way you'd approach building a bridge. And a lot of physical engineering sort of scales with how much resources you put into it. So this guy, Fred Brooks, was working at IBM on the disastrous project that was OS 36. That was uh, that I think took ten years, and I think, yeah, it t- took ten years to ship or something like that. Some crazy number. I might be wrong about the details, but it was like it was known as like one of the most disastrous software projects in history of of software, and it really kind of was like catalyzing point of actually thinking for managers to really think it's like, hey, we don't really know how to do software, and um, and so this guy wrote this book, The Mythical Man Month. And for the title, what he's saying is that this idea that man and month uh, is interchangeable, today we'll say person and month, is a myth. Like you can't add more people to a project and expect it to uh, go faster, get better. Uh, Today we know, you know, Amazon Jeff Bezos is known for the pizza test. If a team is larger than one order of pizza, then the team is probably dysfunctional. Uh, and so we know how little software teams can scale. And in that, he also talked about the limits to productivity. So there's, a, there's a, uh, an essay inside that book called No Silver Bullets. And he talks about how it is impossible to have a big lift in productivity uh, for uh, software engineers yeah this prediction or this kind of thing that he said turned out to be quite prescient but wrong in some in some cases that there isn't a lot of things you could do to 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 make programmers more productive. We had one thing uh, you know um, in the past 20 years that was like a, that was probably like an order of magnitude uh, productivity productivity enhancing for engineers and that's open source so suddenly you have at your fingertips and by the way, he foreshadows that in the book, he talks about libraries as as potentially something that can is a silver bullet. All of this to say is that I think we're in the inning of another silver bullet. I think we are starting to see productivity gains in software engineer in software engineering that are on the same order of magnitude as open source was for software engineering.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um... And in terms of of, how people are using AI today, how they're using your your AI product, do you see it benefiting like an entry-level hobbyist and a professional software developer the same? Or do you think that the benefit currently skews more in one direction?
2: Insofar we have limits, we get more hobbyist usage. The moment we solve these limits, typically we we get more professional uh, usage. And by the way, this is the case in every computing revolution. If you look back at the PC, the PC was seen as a toy by the people who use IBM iframes. It wasn't until the PC got good enough and got enough software and applications and power that it started eating upwards. And now you have entire data centers that are running on PC architecture. And so it ate the entire computer space. So this is the classic... Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, right? And so we're gonna just continue climbing up the power curve and I think we're gonna be able to uh, get most
0: software engineers in the world on Ruplet. I mean, the same could be said of most technologies. Look at electric vehicles, right? That was a, that was a toy for, for the longest time and now it's certainly. So thinking into the future, how is the role of a software engineer going to evolve? Um, is the, the role of a software engineer gonna look the same 10 years from now? just with AI as a sort of an assistant, or is the role gonna fundamentally evolve into some sort of like prompt engineer um, where your primary job just becomes interfacing with an AI tool?
2: I don't think prompt engineering is gonna be a big thing in the future. I feel like people extrapolate too much from the present. Like I feel like prompt is, prompting is almost like a bug and not like a feature because it's like very brittle and it is unexact. And it has all these problems like prompt injections and similar to SQL injections and things like that. So I I don't know what what will replace prompting, but I'm like pretty sure that's not going to be the primary interface. What I think we're going to be able to do is build agent like software developers, like we're going to build AI software developers. I actually think it is possible using the current technology. It just requires a lot of investment, a lot of research a lot of data and a lot of capital. And I, I think we're gonna be able to build it at, at Replit. But basically, like, I think the way software engineers will work in the future is that a lot of the, what they're doing is project management and code review, writing, uh like deep, like loop, loop like hot loop code, you know, when you're like in a low level, you know, language and you're writing like a very performant piece of code. I don't think they'll, they'll be doing that. Most engineers I think will be just like giving tasks to different AIs, reviewing the code, merging things together and just operating on a higher level. So if, if you, if you think about the history of programming, it was, you know, punch cards or like machine code, punch cards, assembly, High-level languages C, dynamic languages Python, and they sort of stopped, right? Like we we're, we're, we like we haven't really crossed that barrier, and I think this is the the S curve. And now the the other the 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 next catalyst for the next kind of S curve is that you're not typing as much code, and you're operating on a more architecture level and you're sort of designing, you're actually in a more creative space and you are working with AIs and you're actually talking to them via language. So I agree with with the idea that there's going to be some prompting, but it is not like the way we think about it today. It's more like chat. It's going to be more like dialogue. I think there's also going to be different languages. I think we're going to have DSLs, so DSLs is like domain specific languages that are particularly optimized for dealing with AIs that can generate code really well. And so you can imagine uh, like the, the DSL becomes this really high level language that programmers are dealing with. And the compiler is sort of this AI that is able to take that DSL and translate it into full uh, working software. I think we're going to have, software is going to be more accessible. Uh, I think we're going to have more software jobs. It's not like we're going to automate software, but the, a single software developer will have the same productivity level as like a hundred software developers today.
0: When do you think we're going to get there?
2: So at, at Replit, uh, we're aiming to... We're working on Ghostwriter V two, which is Ghostwriter is our AI thing. We released a few weeks ago. It's growing thirty percent week over week. That's insane, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) thirty percent week over week. Yeah, it's it's really taking off. And we're working Ghostwriter V two, and Ghostwriter V two is gonna be more aware of your environment, so it knows your files. It can create and delete files for you. It can do entire tasks. It can fix errors for you. And I think we'll be able to get there next year, late next year. And that'll start to feel like an, like you have an assistant. I think once you can have like 50 assistants or hundred assistants, that's probably like more like 2026, 20, 2027, 20, where like, you know, every developer will be 50, hundred X more productive.
0: We do a research report every year and uh, last year we said that the the average software engineer will see a two and a half x productivity uplift by twenty thirty, and uh, I think a, lo- a lot of people outside of AI thought we were kind of crazy, and that wasn't true. And looking at the progress over the last year, I think we like severely underestimated the, the productivity uplift. So that's a that's a re- reaffirming uh, data point. I like how you guys
2: think at Arc. It's it's very unique, and it's like very. First, uh, first uh, principles type thinking. I mean, w- when I when I listen to Kathy, I just get so excited about the future. And yet, I think you're sort of underselling it for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we, we sit in a, a definitely a contrarian box, and, and many of these forecasts. If you look at just like general, I think we're contrarian on two levels. I think for AI in particular, if you talk to you know yourself or people at OpenAI, like we're contrarian in the sense that we're underestimating the potential. If you go talk to the average person on the street, we're contrarian in the sense that we're overestimating. And so I think we're, we're in this kind of funny middle ground where the, the experts who are really leaning into the technologies in many cases think we're underestimating the potential, but I think people just haven't quite realized it. And it's this funny thing with humans, like we're, we're not good at understanding exponential growth. Um, and to, to your point, 30% week over week, I would have to do the math to figure out what that is on a sort of a multiple basis over, over 12 months. It's a huge number. And it's completely non-intuitive. Like we we looked at the sort of the cost declines in AI, and found that historically, cost to train costs to train um, a neural net to perform a specific task. In this case, I think it was um, like AlexNet performance declined at roughly sixty-five percent a year um, for like you know eight years. And you know we continue that modeling work and think it's going to continue to decline at sixty percent. So if you look at what that means, if you have a sixty percent cost decline. Um, the cost to train a model to GPT three level performance, and say GPT three cost five million dollars to train in twenty twenty, give or take. You get that same level of performance for five hundred dollars in compute in twenty thirty, which is oh, just wow. insane. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and it's, I saw. It's, I think
2: you published this thing. It was like there's a Moore's law in training, right? In in training neural nets.
0: Yeah, it's it's yeah. like Wright's law, right? Which is yeah. um, there, there's Moore's law and Wright's law, and Wright's law is sort of the cousin. And instead of it being attached to time, it's attached to units of production. And so for AI, we just use GPUs as you know units of GPU produced. Um, and we can sort of use that as a proxy for an overall cost decline and, and training efficiency. But it's one of those things where it's just hard for us as humans to grasp like exponential curves. But it, it, it works and it makes sense. And you can map all this stuff historically. You know, Throughout history, we saw the most recent example being Tesla and the, the cost of electric vehicles. But, you know, Moore's law is the greatest example of all time. The cost of compute has just continued to collapse. And you could argue that it's maybe, you know, running into a wall a little bit, but regardless, it's, 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 it's incredible. And just, we have a couple of minutes left. And I mean, just to close out, um, I wanted to touch on two things. First, as you think about like building moats around Replit um, and, and, and how you build a, a dominant competitive position with AI in particular, It seems like, you know, some of these capabilities will be to some degree commoditized, right? If we're using foundation models from OpenAI or from others, um, and everybody has access to the same capability through an API, and you can maybe fine tune it a little bit, it seems like we're, we're moving towards kind of some level of commoditization. On the other hand, like if you either train your own models or like you have a bunch of proprietary data to like really fine tune a model in a way that's unique or differentiated, you can kind of leverage your own data advantages but curious as, as you really build this out and build out this vision of becoming not only the future platform for software engineering but really enabling and unlocking all the potential of ai for software engineering how do you think about competitive modes
2: yeah well i, I know you guys are, are super tesla bulls and like you can look at Replit as, as similar to tesla the reason tesla can be the leader in autonomy is because they have so many cars on the street collecting data for them every day right and that's one. Two, they are very well suited from a company DNA perspective, uh, just being a software kind of enabled company. And from a platform perspective, just being a, 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 you know, a software in wheels, they are very well suited to deploy this technology, right? So a lot of other companies will just play catch up just because they're, they were never as computer driven as Tesla, uh, computers were always felt bolted on for any car like Mercedes or whatever it just feels inelegant and it's not really the center of everything and so with, with Replit, the platform is really it's like peanut butter and chocolate with AI you know for example like when the AI generates import import um, numpy if you're if you're using vs code like you're gonna have to go install NumPy, figure out how to install it, install NumPy. On Replet, we actually detect what, what the intent of the program is. That's also sort of another learned behavior and we install it for you. And say the model generated code to show a graph. We also detect that and we open a, uh, a graphics window to show you a graph. None of that automatic behavior happened in any other IDE. And the reason is because we're this vertically integrated platform And so when you plug AI, it just makes everything better and more powerful. And finally, I do think there's a data mode. Yeah, it's easy to overplay the data mode uh, like a lot of companies do. But, you know, like there isn't really another IDE on the market that's like fully vertically integrated, works in the browser, works anywhere, has as much of a, as big of a user uh, user base as, as we do. And, you know, there's a flywheel effect. So you train a model. You deploy it, you get more users, you get more data. You deploy a model, you train another model, you deploy it, you get more users, data, and so you know that that sort of there's this uh, whole flywheel effect. And finally, I also believe in Elon's thing about moats, which is the the real the only moat the only real moat ultimately is just being like two, three, four, five years ahead, and we've always done that at Replit, like. We're still the leader in collaborate real time collaboration. Nobody has caught up yet. We we thought like when we built it in twenty eighteen, we thought it would have a like a two year lead. You know, it turned out to be like a four plus year uh, lead. We'll see what when like you know GitHub has real time collaboration, and I think we should just keep building those those advantages.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and I mean the same as you could say is true with Figma, right and they just stayed far enough ahead where Adobe couldn't catch up, and then it became like a serious competitive threat. Where if they didn't acquire them, they were going to crush you know the the core you know design software business. And at the same time, it seems like with AI, to some degree, incumbents have an advantage. Not not calling you an incumbent necessarily, but uh, I think be, you're becoming the incumbent in the sense that like you are the platform that software engineers are migrating to. Right, this is where software engineers want to actually code and collaborate. Um, and that better positions you to, to build AI features than a net new product that's trying to now attract software engineers over to their ecosystem and their platform. And Figma yeah. using a proxy is like the same same example, right? Like Figma is probably best positioned to deploy AI tools for design.
2: Yeah. So here's a contrarian uh, like prediction, because like a lot of VCs are now like, you know, when they hopped on this like generative AI kind of train, which is kind of becoming really boring really quickly. Um, there's like this there's this this buzzword now AI native startups um which is like saying like you know uh native self-driving car it's like no, you need a Tesla to deploy self-driving on like yeah like waymo I guess is a native like when are they shipping never you know and so with AI uh you know right now i I think the horizontal tools and platforms will be the first to kind of deploy it and get a lot of benefits out of it. Not saying that there won't be like AI specific startups, but I think it's more like the startups that already have some usage and already have some growth and they can react really quickly to this shift and build in the capability. They're going to be the winners as opposed to like, uh, startups that have to build AI capability and get the users and you know build the platform and all of that.
0: I couldn't agree more. Yeah, there, there are many uh, writing assistant startups that have been funded without naming any specific company. And sa- same thesis there, right? I think it's gonna go to you know the, the companies that already, the notions of the world that already have users using them as a writing tool. And it seems like there's AI first capabilities maybe, maybe for vertical AI, um, where you're building, I guess in many ways, is a vertical SaaS platform with embedded AI. Uh, but cer- certainly seems like the advantage will go to those platforms that already have users. you know, using that for some native domain-specific capability. But fa- fascinating, and I know we're up on time. But one more rap- rapid question for you: If you look back at your experience building Replit, what's the one thing you wish you knew for day one when you started the company? To trust myself
2: more. You know, I think I think you know. It's sort of at the risk of of sounding arrogant, but. I've been derailed mostly by just sort of like random advice from investors, from customers, from you know maybe even people that I consider mentors. I start to take it like a bit of a negative view on advice because I think advice is very context sensitive, uh, and like people extrapolate from their personal experience. So whenever someone gives you advice take the meta view on that advice. It's like, what is is the reason they're saying this? Um, And does it apply to my situation? Uh, Because a lot of, like, you know, we like to think in Silicon Valley that we're like this, you know, very analytic uh, kind of group of people, but there's like so much pattern matching here and there's so much cargo culting. And I, I wish, I wish I was more independent minded. I, I, my nature is independent minded. And even for me, that wasn't enough. And I think just really, really being disciplined about trusting your instincts um, is, is is super important.
0: That's great. Couldn't agree more. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining and uh, look forward to following the journey. Awesome. Thanks a lot.